0: All right, well, let me officially welcome you to week four and our final week of our marriage series. I thought we'd get kicked off right with this slide. Uh, am I doing away with this? All right, I apologize. I don't know why I'm apologizing. It's the mic's fault. All right. Uh, so here's the deal. We're talking about our marriage series, our home series, and um, so I thought this was fitting. Getting married is psychological, Right? And staying married is about determining which one of you is the psycho and which one of you is logical. All right? <laughs> no pointing fingers, Mr. Anderson. Okay? <laughs> yeah. I hope that something we have said, by the way, if you want to take your Bibles, go to Ephesians 5. Um, that's where we will begin today. I hope something that's been said over the past few weeks has been helpful to you in your relationship. To your spouse we have been defining and describing marriage and we started really this whole series off by really kind of defining not biblical marriage just marriage because marriage is biblical marriage is God's he designed it and so we kind of gave it this definition here marriage is a holy covenant between the one true God of heaven one man and his one wife anything outside the scope of those perimeters is not marriage according to the holy scriptures one God, one man, one woman, oh, by the way, forever, forever. And so we've seen that in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 over the past few weeks. And then we begin to describe marriage. We begin to quickly see God's plan and his purpose of marriage. So here was the plan. We, we found this in Genesis 2, that one man and one woman were to leave their parents, to leave their homes, to leave all other relational priorities and they were to be joined or we use the king james word cleaved because i love that word that's what i grew up on they cleave to one another it's this idea of two people and then glue and they're stuck together that's that's the idea of joining or cleaving all right and then the two becoming one and we got that from the very beginning in Genesis two, and then Jesus repeats it in Matthew, Mark, and then obviously Paul, the apostle Paul repeats it in Ephesians five. But one of the things that we've been talking about over these few weeks, that this is bigger than just one man and one woman leaving and cleaving to one another, right? We said that this is one follower of Jesus and another follower of Jesus leaving all other priorities uh, as, as far as earthly relationships and leaving and cleaving to one another. This is one son of God and one daughter of God leaving and cleaving and becoming one. That is marriage defined and described by God. See, some of us just want to focus on, well, it's between a man and a woman. No, no, no. If you want to get technical, it's about one child of God And one child of God, a son and a daughter becoming one, and anything outside of that doesn't make sense according to God's definition and description of marriage. This was a reminder that your husband and your wife is not just a spouse. They are God's children, so we must be careful how we treat them, right? we talked about that if someone abuses you whether it would be verbally or physically if someone was to, was to do that to your child and yet god a holy god when he sees his children his sons and his daughters being abused we must be very careful how we treat one another not only are they fellow children of God, they are fellow kingdom servants called upon to deny themselves and serve King Jesus. And not only are they family and servants, but they are fellow missionaries empowered by the Spirit of God to witness of the goodness and the faithfulness of Jesus. Marriage is much bigger than what we maybe originally thought. The past few weeks we have discussed the purpose of marriage and it, we use this phrase that marriage is a mirror marriage is a mirror that is to reflect the glory of God and the love of Christ for his bride the church our marriages are meant to be an earthly representation of a heavenly relationship and so the question on the screen is a fair question that every one of us must wrestle with. Does our marriage reflect Jesus well? Because that's the purpose of marriage. To be a small taste, a small glimpse of a greater God and a greater home. Does your marriage reflect Jesus well? It can. Remember the quote that we used from Chip Ingram in week one? Everyone wants a great marriage, but very few experience one. You can. It is possible. A great marriage, here's what we learned over the last few weeks. A great marriage is really just one rule away the gospel rule. John 13, 15. Ephesians 5, 1. 1 Peter 2, 21. 1 John 2, 6, right? Do for one another as Christ has done for you. And here's what we said. That means that our motive is, our motive in how we relate to our spouse has less to do with how they relate to us and more to do with how Christ has related to us. And that changes everything. This idea alone could radically change our marriages. Our lives would be so full of grace and generosity if we treated our spouses not how they deserve, but how Christ has treated you even when you didn't deserve. We see the gospel rule in the very first verse of Ephesians chapter 5. This is what we've looked at over the past few weeks, but I just want to do a quick review as we launch into our last session today. In verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, Imitate God. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. Why? Because you are his dear children. As we walk through this text today you're going to see that you're going to see this rule over and over and over do and the motivator is always going to be there to remind us why because you are his children because of what he has done oh, you're going to see it over and over and over and so in verse one he says imitate god because you are gods you're his children and then we kind of camped into verse 20 right When the Apostle Paul says this, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There again, we see the command, submit to one another, and we get the why. Out of reverence for Christ, because Jesus, who is a third of the Trinity, submitted himself to the Father. Actually submitted himself to us. In obedience to God through his death on the cross. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we talked about this mutual submission, and it's not because they deserve it. Man, we could just spend the rest of the day naming off the list of why our spouse doesn't deserve it, right? Especially if you're having a bad morning, or a bad weekend, or a bad year. And our human nature might be, oh man, you're right. (laughs) They don't deserve it. Never mind then. But Paul never goes to human reasoning here. He always points us to our motivation is Jesus Christ. So in verse 21, he speaks to the lady and he says this to the the wife. For wives, this means submit to your husbands. There's the command. What's the motivation? As to the Lord. Paul knew that the men would not deserve submission. And we talked about what that looks like. Really, if you were to read on, you'd understand that by submission here, Paul's talking about creating a culture of wives, creating a culture of respect in your home and in your marriage towards your man. Just as Christ, hmm. our motivation. So. For the wives, it looks like submission in the form of sacrificial respect. Why? Because, again, Jesus, as to the Lord, you're not... Listen, uh, we said this a few weeks ago, I think, but but the, the statement was this. Your submission to your husband has more to do with obedience to Christ than it does submission to your husband. And you'll see that in some text a little later on. In verse 22, what does submission look like for the man... verse 25 it says for husbands here's what this means for you you love your wives as the command here's the motivation just as christ has loved you the church and he gave up his life for her it looks like uh submission in the form of sacrificial love why because jesus has loved you and then we looked at verses 31 through 33 and that's kind of where we landed last week but it says as the scripture say and he now quotes from Genesis 2 a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one this is a great mystery all right we've had some fun with that marriage is a mystery right your spouse sometimes is a very great mystery but this is a mystery that's really an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one do you see this idea of reflection Paul is saying, listen, your marriage really is supposed to be an illustration, a reflection, an image of Christ and his relationship to the church, and how those two have become one. Last verse. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. But then Paul continues his thoughts. You see, I know there's a break in Ephesians, but there's not a break in Paul's letter, and he still continues with relationships notice the first four verses of chapter six children obey your parents command motivation because you belong to the lord for this is the right thing to do more motivation honor your father and mother this is the first commandment with a promise what does that mean it means this verse four verse three: If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on the earth. Again, Paul, right from Exodus chapter 20 verse 12 there, just quoting. And then we get verse 4. Fathers, parents, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Command, here's the motivation. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and the instruction that comes from the Lord. In other words, in the same way that you have been discipled and disciplined and instructed and brought up in the Lord, that is how you are to instruct and disciple and discipline and, and bring up your children. I love this. The gospel rule, this idea of doing as Christ has done for you, transcends beyond just the walls of marriage or the church. It even transcends into our parenting. Let me just remind you again. I, John thirteen fifteen, Jesus says, I I gotta stay by the mic. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. John thirteen, fifteen. Ephesians 5 1. Imitate God, therefore in everything you do as his dear children. First Peter 2 21, you know this. It says that Jesus has given us an example and we must follow in his steps and then John in 1 John 2 says for those who say they live belong to God they should live their lives as Jesus did but then for the leader for the parent i would say there's another one that we could add to the mix and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1 and you should imitate me just as i imitate Christ wow what if we just begin to tell our kids just do what you see us do you can post on social media whatever you see I whatever you see me and your mother post you can say whatever you hear us say you can do whatever you see us do you can go wherever you see us go and some of you would think that's crazy and Paul would say, no, that's Christianity. And when we fail, our kids should see us fail, and they should see us confess and repent before God. What if, parents, we just begin to live by this motto, imitate me, do, kids, do as you, what if you just had this family, have a family meeting tonight and just say, Kids, whatever we do, whatever your mother and I do, whatever your father and I do, permission. I want you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. See, there's a command there, but there's a a motivator there. And Paul's not finished. He's still talking about relationships in verses 5 through 9. Look at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with a deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were walking, working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember That the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. In those verses, we see the commands, but we see the motivators too. Why? Why? Because we are working for the Lord, not man. In Colossians, Paul repeats this in chapter 3. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Verse 9 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. He says, as masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. This text here is not condoning slavery, but it's not afraid to speak into the darkness of it. And we can get into what maybe that kind of slavery looked like in biblical terms or we could actually just say let's look at this through the relationship of an employee or employer, those who you have authority over and those who have authority over you and that would be fine. But I just want us to understand here that Paul says slave or free, that you both have a master in heaven. That is your motivation. Stop looking at how people are treating you here and start looking at how you are being treated by your heavenly Father. And then, whether they are good to you on earth or not, it won't matter. Whether they are watching you or not, it won't matter. Because ultimately, your reward is will be given by your Heavenly Father who sees all, and all He's concerned about is why we do what we do. May our motivation be Christ and His finished work on the cross on our behalf. Hmm. And the message here is very clear. The gospel rule not only transcends marriage and family, but the gospel rule transcends every possible earthly relationship. And that's good news for us, church, because God doesn't give us one rule of how we should treat these people and one rule for how we should treat this people, and uh, you know, whether they are rich or poor or whether they are male or female or whether they are black or white or whether they are Republican or Democrat. God doesn't care. He says, my rule transcends all of that. And you are to do for one another, as I have done for you. In fact, Jesus takes it a step farther. I just threw this, I think I threw it in there. Matthew 5. Did I put that in the Jesus says this: You have heard the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Command, motivation. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. No one is excluded from the gospel rule. And our motivation is to be that when we are doing as Christ has done for us, we are acting as the true children of God. True children of God are set apart by the gospel. Listen, the gospel changes us. It just does. If you're a Christian for 10 years and you look no different from the world, I'm not too sure the gospel has changed you. You might be a professional churchgoer, You might have heard all the right things growing up, but there might have never been a time that you went from death to life spiritually. The gospel will change you. And all of those things, all of those times that I just pointed out to you, our motivation. When the gospel changes you, you desire to be motivated by the things God has given to motivate. True children of God are set apart by the gospel. It changes us and we act different. And I don't want to stop there. We've got to move on. Verse 10. A final word from Paul. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. Now doesn't it seem like Paul might have had an ADD moment here. Doesn't it seem like Paul might have shifted thoughts and gone kind of just went on to it? Because we know Ephesians 6 from 10 on is kind of the spiritual warfare scripture text. But have you ever understood that this, this spiritual warfare text that Paul gives us is right dab in the middle of the context of relationships. He goes from marriage and relationships to armor and strategies of the devil. And there's jokes there, but we won't make them. So was this a mistake on Paul's behalf? Absolutely not. Paul knew exactly what he was doing he knew exactly what he was saying because here's the truth church god has a plan for our church do you believe that all right three of us great god has a plan for your marriage do you believe that god has a plan for your family do you believe that god has a plan for your entire life do you believe that you know who else has a plan for your life the devil The devil has plans for your marriage, for your kids, for your church. The devil has strategies, and the goal of every single one of them is your destruction. That's it. Don't take this literally, but the devil wakes up every morning. I'm aware he probably doesn't sleep. The devil wakes up every morning with a plan of how he can destroy your life, your marriage, your testimony. Anything he can do to destroy this image of God in your life. He's all about shattering it. Destroying it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter says this, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, your wife, no. Your great enemy, your husband? No. Hey, teens, your great enemy? Mom and dad? No. Your pastor? No. Your neighbor? No. Your boss? Eh, no. Your great enemy the devil. Is prowling around like a roaring lion looking For someone can you just replace the word someone with your children with your pastor with your brother or sister in Christ that sets the cross just kind of put their face in the place of someone your neighbor looking for someone to devour One of the devil's greatest schemes is to convince us that our enemies have flesh and blood. And in the very next verse here in Ephesians 6, what does Paul say? We, verse 12, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers, authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We are not fighting against flesh flesh and blood, and yet the divorce rate would beg to differ. And broken homes and broken hearts would say otherwise. Oh God, that we would be reminded that our great enemy is the devil and not each other. We have been so deceived We shouldn't be surprised. Genesis tells us that's what sin does. It deceives us. It crouches at the door just waiting for an opportunity. We have been so deceived and so distracted by fighting flesh and blood, by fighting each other. And the church and our marriages and our homes have suffered the loss. There are earthly relationships that maybe even us in this room once had that are severed what looks like forever because we were deceived into thinking that our enemy was flesh and blood. Our fight is against spiritual evil. When we suffer, listen, When you suffer in your life, when your marriage is struggling, when the home life is fractured, when there is stress and bitterness and anger in relationships at work, you need to understand you are a victim of spiritual warfare. And the enemy is not the boss or the spouse or the child or the parent or the neighbor. The enemy is the devil. Look at verse 13. Therefore, therefore I keep telling my wife to get me an eye ex- examination. <laughs> therefore, put on every piece of... God's armor, so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil, then after the battle, you will still be what? Standing firm. Church, that's the goal. Husband, wife, that's the goal. To still be standing after the battle, after the assault. And the key to this, Paul says, is resisting resisting the devil if we are going to create a gospel culture around our church around our marriages around our homes number one first of all we must recognize that we have an enemy that has a plan and that plan is to deceive and destroy us and the devil is your problem not your spouse not your neighbor right no no flesh and blood the devil is your problem not your mom or your dad Not your boss, not your employee, not the Republicans or the Democrats, the conservatives or the liberals, as easily as it is to make them the enemy. But we must recognize that we have one true enemy. Now he might be at work and he is at work in those that we consider to be possible earthly enemy targets. But there is is a spiritual war that we cannot see going on in the hearts of man. We must recognize that we have an enemy, and it's not each other, it's the devil. Number two, our only hope in standing firm is the solid footing of the gospel. It's our only hope. As we acknowledge the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it leads us to repentance. And it leads us to become worshipers of God and God alone. And then as we grow in that knowledge of who God is and what he has done on our behalf through the work and person of Jesus, it leads us to greater worship and obedience. Our constant surrender to the gospel's work in and through us is what leads us to greatness. If we want a great church, if we want great marriages, if we want a great home, we must resist the devil and we must run to the cross moment by moment. We must daily dwell in the great truth of who God is and what he's done and then we must pursue daily living in obedience of doing as the gospel has done for us. And so I would just want to end by saying that Journey will never stop striving to become more and more gospel-centered in everything we do. You will never stop hearing about the gospel rule around here. It is the foundation of all that we are. Remember, we do as Christ has done, and when we display that well, we rejoice, and when we fail, we repent. And it's a daily, daily practice. But we also understand when it comes to being self, or self-centered, Ooh. when it comes to being gospel-centered, I should probably just preach self-centered. It's probably more applicable to our lives sometimes. When it comes to being gospel-centered, we understand that starts with being ground, grounded in a gospel identity. We must know not just who we are, but whose we are. And that we daily learn more of what it means and what it looks like to be One with Christ it's another thing we say a lot around here we're family and we're servants and we're missionaries it's our baptismal identity we're baptized into God the Father family and we're baptized into God the Son servant we're baptized into God the Holy Spirit the one who has come to empower us to be a witness of the greatness of Jesus Not only that, we understand that we must surrender to the gospel rule and let it rule our lives in every relationship we have. We also must continue to grow up into spiritual maturity through the practicing of spiritual disciplines. If this is it for you for the week, you're in trouble. You will not resist the devil and stand firm if this is your church for the week. It takes daily, intimate fellowship if you're going to be great, if you're going to stand firm. And we also know that we must go together on gospel mission to tell the world the good news of Jesus. I love our gatherings, but this is not enough. We must go beyond these walls together in mission of reflecting the gospel of Jesus to everyone we rub shoulders with.